Welcome everyone back to Peds Ortho. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. We are going to uh, take a little break from our regular programming to do a special episode. This has been put together by the Wellness Committee, uh, who will be taking over. So I will soon be taking a backseat for the rest of this episode. The real hosts, or I should say moderators for the conversation, will be Lauren Heyer from Greenville Shriners and Brian Scannell, a good friend of the show and uh, from CMC, where he's the orthopedic residency director. And then we have three guests who have been invited to discuss their personal experience, their personal advice for wellness for uh, our orthopedic audience. So first up is Dr. Peter Waters. Uh, as we all know, I think, previously at Boston Children's for a storied career, and now down in Charlotte at uh, Ortho Carolina and Atrium. Dr. Waters, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I think we'll have a fun time. I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot. I wanted to ask, when was the move, first of all, and what's been the, the best part of the move for you? The move, actually, for completion was just about a year ago now. To be honest, the best part of the move and the sole purpose of the move was family, so my adult children and their spouses, and now there are three grandchildren, ages nine, six, one. And I just found out on Sunday, the fourth is on his or her way. So that's why we're here. And then fortunately, people down here gave me some stuff to do, which is quite fun in pediatrics <laughs> and hand surgery. I, I suppose you probably still have some employable skills, and that's great for you, great for Charlotte, and uh, congratulations on that big news. Next thank up, uh, back to the podcast, is Dr. Steve Frick from Stanford. Dr. Frick, thank you for joining us. And, uh, you know, last time you were on, I learned a ton about club feet, and I remember being really inspired by how into it and enthusiastic <laughs> and sort of still into learning about club feet you were, which one was inspiring and two was horrifying that you're still learning so much about club feet. Um, so I just want to ask any interesting club feet experiences or anything you feel like you've learned recently? Well, I just had a uh, meeting with some Stanford medical students and uh, we were introducing, you know, everyone's introducing themselves. And so I'm now an MS 35 <laughs> and uh, hope to never stop learning. And the day that I quit learning will be the day that I need to quit being a doctor. You know, I think, you know, as good as we are now with the Ponsetti method, the questions I have are all about who are the kids that are going to relapse? Why do they relapse? And I think importantly, can we identify the kids who aren't going to relapse so that we don't have to put them in braces for three or four or five years? So those are all uh, my current questions. And I'm hoping to spend some time this fall with Hamish Crawford down in New Zealand. And we're going to look at some of those questions together. That sounds like it might also be very good for wellness. And uh, last and certainly not least, Dr. Kristen Carroll from the uh, Salt Lake City Shriners, where she's the chief of the medical staff and an endowed chair. Dr. Carroll, thank you for joining the show. How are you? I'm great. This is like such an honor to be on here with friends of mine and people I really admire. It's wonderful. What we ask a lot of people when they come on the show is uh, if you have a favorite procedure, like something you'd just love to see on your schedule. Um, you know, it's interesting because I don't do that much club feet anymore, but I have to think an anterior tip tendon transfer is actually one of my favorite procedures. Um, <laughs> I think it's just wonderful. I am a neuromuscular specialist right now. So I think that now the most 
favorite procedure I have is I just love when, you know, a four or five-year-old comes in totally ready to go walking and scissors and walks with, you know, flex knee and up on their toes. And I know I can do a soft tissue lengthening for them in three levels and make a huge difference in their life. So I think that is now my favorite procedure. That's a great answer. I think that's not one we've gotten before in a very elegant procedure. Great answer. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to uh, mute myself and hand things over to Lauren and Brian for the rest of the show. Thanks, Carter, so much. Um, and thank thank you to our three guests for for joining us this evening. So we, um, as part of the POSNA Wellness Committee, one of the initiatives that came out was just um, if we could just have the ability to talk more openly about the good days, the bad days, the busy days. And how do, how do we manage it all? So, so Brian and I just thought of three people that we personally admire uh, and just want to hear from you guys, like how, you, how, you, how you've done it and how you continue to do it. Yeah, no. So I think we'll just kind of start, Dr. Carroll, maybe if you want to start, talk through maybe even a memorable complication that you had and how that impacted you and kind of how you handled that. What we'll probably do is kind of go through each of you and talk about whatever that clinical scenario was and then maybe kind of get into the weeds a little bit more. So I've had a number, of course, as many of us have, the more you're in here. You know what, Frick, did you, what did you say you're 35. I'm like 32 years out now. So, you know, one of the most memorable things for me and actually really formed my career was when I was taking my oral boards. And one of my complications was a CP kid that I did femoral rotational osteotomies on and the child went to recovery and I realized I hadn't outwardly rotated that child enough. And I had to take him back before he was fully awake, talk to the family and say, I'm so sorry, but we're going to take him back and rotate him further. And, you know, here I am sitting in my oral boards with people that I really respect. And I just went on and on about, it was all my fault. I I made a a bad judgment. I under-rotated this child. I feel so badly. I had to bring him back. And what was amazing was my oral examiners said, I think you're being a little too hard on yourself. This happens to all of us. What was important is that you recognized it. You were open with the family. You were open with the resident who was helping you. And you helped that child before they even reached the floor again and, you know, came back six weeks later. And that forgiveness and understanding for that clinical error of mine, it really kind of formed the way I teach going forward. Even though it's incredibly scary what we do, it's incredibly hard what we do, realizing that people with so much more experience than me realize that these things happen and that I was forgiven for it early on. That was a pivotal experience for me. Dr. Waters, anything kind of theme-wise consistent with kind of what Dr. Carroll said on any complication that you've had? I mean, as I look back to that forgiveness piece is tough. So, uh, Brian, if I can, I'll get there by telling a story and and working away. But to begin with, I think it is something we don't always recognize, but it's fairly outrageous that we take knives to human beings and to little children, right? And and it's uh, it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of caring. And every time we do it, we have to understand why are we doing this at our best intentions to make them and their families better and more whole. So the story I'm going to tell is just a terrible story. 
of a kid who died totally unexpectedly. But it starts with this father cutting his lawn, big acreage uh, lawn with the child sitting on a sit-down lawnmower and the kid falls off and ends up with pretty devastating limb and even injuries into the groin area and into the abdomen. And we took care of this kid and we, we put things back on and we repaired things up and it was, it was incredible. And it really went well. And the night before the child was to be discharged, um, the mother said, she's not well. And it was on a Saturday night and everybody said, oh, she's fine. And what had happened was she had had a central line that had been in for a long time and the central line eroded through her heart and she had a sudden cardiac arrest and died. Uh, at five o'clock in the morning when she was supposed to go home at nine o'clock that morning after being in the hospital for a long time. And that crushed my bones. It crushed everybody's bones. It devastated the family. And I took her hospital sticker and I put it in my locker. And literally until the day I left Boston Children's uh, last September and gave up that locker, every day before I went in the OR and closed the door, I looked at that sticker. And I had a moment's meditation of, uh, we do not want to do this again. And it led to lots of changes. But for example, every one of those times that there's a devastating injury, the first thing besides how we did in the OR is I tell parents, one of you is going to feel very guilty and one of you is going to maybe blame the other. And you, your marriage and your family may fall apart if you don't get together right now. And that's one of the first conversations that I have with people of trying to bring them back to whole and be well. So it's a big story, but it's, it's one of those stories. We have bad things happen and, and we got to manage ourselves you know, like the airplane, we got to put the oxygen on ourselves and then we got to manage everybody else in the room and, and in the whole area and help them be well and help them be whole. And, and it's it's a hard job. And if you so the, the other thing I would lead into is, boy, it helps when you got really good partners. Like when I was young, every time I had a bad complication or a bad problem or something I was worried about, somebody like John and Emmons would call me at home and say, how are you doing tonight? You know, are, are you OK? And, uh, and so we got to take care of each other is my other message. We really got to take care of each other. We, we do big things for very good reasons, but it's hard work. Thank you. Dr. Frick, uh, I actually remember after my first big complication, you weren't here as you had moved on to Orlando at the time, but you called because a mentor, another mentor of mine here had actually reached out to you and you had reached out to me. So I, I agree completely with, with Dr. Waters' comments of, having that support group. And I'm not sure what story you were going to kind of tell, but if it was something early in your career, how did you kind of find that support early on in your career for managing those complications? Yeah, I think that you know me well enough that that is, I was going to talk about, you know, early in my career, somewhat similar to what Dr. Waters just described, but a little bit different in that these were elective cases where, you know, you have a conversation with the family and you're the one who says, I think I can help your child. And then you offer a surgical intervention based on that trust. And then you take trust for that child's well-being. And so I had early in my career, I had three different occasions where I had patients die unexpectedly in the very early post-operative period after what was really pretty minor orthopedic surgery. And, you know, all of them had some comorbidities, but we thought they were appropriately, you know, managed preoperatively and they'd been worked up appropriately. But I tell you, it is it is devastating and crushed is a good uh, word to use. I mean, I was just I, I, and I get crushed. I, I'm, I'll get crushed thinking about it again right now. 
But at the same time, I think those experiences really made me a better doctor and, and made me understand more. I mean, I think it's until you live it, you don't really get it. I just like Dr. Water said, you know, I think about those patients all the time. I think about their families. You know, one of those families I had to call on Thanksgiving Day to tell them that their child was not alive. And I didn't know why. And I wasn't sure what happened, but I was going to try to figure it out. And then I think when those things happen, you do have to put the oxygen on yourself first and sort of recuperate a little bit. But then I've just put myself in the family's position. I'm like, what do they need from me? How can I help them? This is it's terrible. The, the tendency is to not want to talk about it and to put it away and not face it. And you'll feel worse. And so what I did, Brian, is I reached out to people that, you know, you know, because they're still in Charlotte, but, you know, the, the chair at the time, we were fortunate that we had a, a fantastic uh, musculoskeletal oncologist who they face these issues all the time. They, he's, he was better at it than I was. And he was so helpful to talk to him and get advice about, you know, how to talk to families about these things. So I think the biggest things that I would say is don't put it away, talk about it. And depending on your support system, talk about it with your spouse or your partner or your best friend who's not medical. I think that's helpful. Find a partner who has experience and has been through it and can help mentor you. Because I think as soon as you start to talk about it and develop a plan for how you're gonna deal with it, uh, be it an unexpected death or an unexpected complication, everyone's going to feel better mm-hmm. and then communicate that as clearly and as honestly and in as non-medical terms as you can with the family. The, the grace that families will show you when you have made either an error in judgment, an error in skill, or just had something terrible, unexpected happen. When you show them that you care and that you want to help them and that you're as devastated by a bad outcome as they are, the grace that I have been given by my patients' families is remarkable. Yeah, I can't I can't overstate what Steve just said. That is so true. You know, you can help the family understand that you're all on the same team and that you are devastated too. And also that you're trying to come up with a way that this will never happen to another child if you can figure out a reason. That is incredibly powerful. One other caveat I would make is that number one, that they don't they don't owe you the grace. That's they right. don't, and that they may not give it to you. And so I've had the opposite where something bad happens and they're just angry. You know, well they're human, and something terrible just happened to perhaps the most precious thing in their life, and uh, so understand that too. And I get that. So, but I think that for your own wellness, it's a little bit like uh, I tell people that are going into practice who are going to take trauma call and take care of bad injuries. If you're not Peter Waters and you can't whip a microscope in there and sew a brachial artery back together, it's good to know the Peter Waters in your community before you need them at two in the morning and you haven't ever talked to them. Well, it's the same thing for your own wellness. Like, be prepared. Like, it's going to happen. You know, it takes courage to be a surgeon. We, we do brave, courageous things every day. And as uh, Dr. Carroll said in the beginning, like, if you do this long enough, you know, like they say, they're, the only people that don't have complications are the people that don't do surgeries. So figure out in your own group and in your own setting who the people are who seem to have experience and have empathy and are the, are the go-to people 
for mentoring and advice and get to know them. That, that preparation will help you. That's great advice. I think Peter had something to say. Yeah. So Lauren, Brian, everybody, so the conversation's fabulous. Uh, somebody once said to me, you know, never say you're sorry. I, I can't even tell you how many times for just the silliest thing, like being late, I say I'm sorry. But uh, when something goes wrong, uh, I think there are two things, you know, it's really important to say you're sorry, not that you're a terrible surgeon or a terrible doctor, but I'm sorry this has happened to your child and to you. And to be honest, to all of us, number one, you know, number two, hold yourself accountable. Like we're going to do our best to fix this, right? So now we're talking about things short of death. We started in the, the deepest, darkest place, which is when somebody dies, a child dies. But but that's not what mostly happens in orthopedics. Mostly what happens is we end up with something less than we wanted or less than they expected, or it didn't go quite as we had set our plan to it. And, and what are we going to do about that, right? And so you have to say, I'm sorry, it's where we are right now. And I'm going to hold myself and my team accountable. And we're going to do everything we can to fix that, right? And, and I think it's both that humility of understanding you know, we did our best and it didn't work out and we're going to do better and we're going to figure this out, not only for the next generation, but actually today, tomorrow, tonight, next week, whenever the time may be. You know, you know, Brian, I had my first complication in Charlotte, you know, the, the big dog comes to town and has something go wrong. And, you know, I just said, hey, part of the group, I just had my first complication in Charlotte. And now we're going to go fix this, you know, not with humor, but, you know, really, that's that's what we do. And so I think that caring, that empathy, but also they want your expertise too. Not only do they want your wellness expertise, they want your educational content, your surgical expertise. And so you got to stay on the job. You got you got to stay on the job. And if you can't, you got to bring friends who can do the job to help you, you know, because you got to get the job done. You got to get back to that safe spot for everybody. Yeah. Already, I feel like I'm taking so many mental notes as to, you know, just how to carry what you guys have said into practice. Real quick, just for, uh, especially for the women in our audience, um, Kristen, any ways you feel like we females may process complications a little bit differently from our, from our male colleagues? Well, I mean, this is, of course, this generalization, right? But I, as, you know, a resident umpteen years ago, decades now ago. What one thing I noticed is like, as a gal, I want to talk about stuff. Like I want to get it out. I want to talk about it. I want to process it. I want somebody to listen to it. And I noticed for my male colleagues, and I had wonderful co-residents, absolutely wonderful human beings. They didn't talk about stuff that went wrong quite as much as I did, which made me feel like I was the only one that had things going wrong (laughs) because I was talking about it. I don't think that's quite as true now. Um, I hope it's not. But I I used to think that it was just gals who kind of suffered from imposter syndrome. Oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. You know, and then I start talking to people like talking to Sherm Coleman before he passed away and him telling me, oh, oh, honey, I didn't do any hard cases my first two years without my mentor. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Dr. Coleman? You just said that, you know, and realizing we all go through this. The first years in practice are tough for everyone and complications are tough no matter what year you're at. And I think one of the things I've learned over time is actually how similar men and women process this sort of grief and loss and that sort of thing, even though we may communicate it differently. 
And that that for me was kind of an aha moment, hearing my male colleagues say, oh, gosh, yeah, that happened to me. And Because when I talk to them about it, they say the same thing. Like listening to Dr. Frick and Dr. Waters, I mean, amazing physicians and, and hearing them be vulnerable and open makes you realize that, you know, this is hard for everybody, male or female. And so I think that the differences that I perceived earlier on are actually a little less so now. I'm happy about that that it's respected to be vulnerable and open. That might be an advancement, not just in our field, but in medicine in general of just, Mm -hmm. you know, the recognition of instead of hiding from complications, like embracing them and owning them and learning from them. Yeah. It's the only way forward. Right. I mean, if we don't, if we don't talk about our complications, like Dr. Waters said an incredible pearl there. He said, the mom said to me, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure this has happened to Dr. Waters and Dr. Frick and me. Like when a mom says that, you listen. Yeah, I call it the mom gut. <laughs> <laughs> it's the spidey sense, right? You listen. And and learning that as early as possible is really helpful. I think that all those things are helpful for all of us, regardless of gender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. Um, maybe uh, turning the conversation just a little bit to more of the busy days. Like all of us are so busy, busy, busy. You know, I woke up at, I don't know, 4.45 this morning and now it's 9.30, you know, and just haven't really, haven't really sat down, haven't really stopped. So um, advice for just like the day-to-day or and or week-by-week um, strategies for for just trying to stay afloat, trying to keep, you know, your head attached and, and, and your head in the game too. Um, any any comments or thoughts um, along those lines? We'll start with uh, Steve Frick. It is a marathon, right? So it's not a sprint. And I tell residents all the time, today you're not in charge of your schedule, but one day you're actually in charge of your schedule. And uh, the demands of patient care will often wreck your schedule, but you get to make it beforehand. And if you don't schedule some time in there for yourself and for your own well-being, as someone has said, you know, medicine will steal your time. There's no shortage of uh, opportunities for things to pop up. And so actually scheduling time in to work out, to take a walk with your dog, to sit down and have a conversation with your spouse. And we're all creatures of habit. So the, the way that you do it, you have to make it like a ritual and make it a habit. And there's all kinds of ways to do that. You know, the one is, you know, when you put your hand on the doorknob to walk in your house at the end of the day whatever, take three big breaths, say work is done. I'm here to be with my family now. And for the next pick, however long until you got to go, you know, do some charts or on call. But the same attention I just gave to people in my office for the last four hours or eight hours or in the OR for all day long, I'm not going to give to my family. So pick a ritual, whatever it is, however it is, you can in your own head, organize that schedule some time off for yourself and for your family. And so, you know, I, I tell this story a lot, but after a few years in Charlotte, I went into the chair's office and said, I need to take every Thursday afternoon off. And that was at a time when I don't think people really did that. And I, and I told him, I, actually, the next words out of my mouth were, I'm not going to feel bad about it because for the first three years that I've been here, I've been the first, my key's been the first key in this door. And it's been the last key on the way out every day. So it's not like I'm not working hard, but I want to coach my kids basketball teams. And I got to have an afternoon that I can have practice reliably once a week. And so I made my schedule and that that I cleared that. And I coached my kids for five years. Every Thursday afternoon, we have practice, you know. So you, you do have con- some control of your own schedule. If you don't do it, no one's going to do it. 
So that, mm-hmm. that'd be my first pearl is uh, that. And then every day you can build a little ritual that says, okay, I'm done with work. However much time you can do it. Maybe it's the whole evening. Maybe you just get an hour or two, but you got to oscillate. One of the principles in biology is that you can't go all the time. We need to rest occasionally and you got to build that into your schedule. That's excellent. Uh, Peter, what about you? Any, any thoughts along those lines? Yeah. So I'm going to take a tangent on the way in, if you'll allow me. Absolutely. So it's a wellness seminar, and I think it's just important to understand kind of what's the definition of wellness or well-being. Uh, and basically, it's healthy mind and body, and I, and I throw in soul there through deliberate effort, through deliberate effort. So it, it just doesn't miraculously show up. You have to deliberately go about your wellness like you deliberately go about learning your anatomy or learning your operative procedures or et cetera. And wellness comes in in so many different ways, right? And so we could talk about physical wellness and for some that's the avenue. And you can talk about how that plays into nutrition and sleep and your health. And you can talk about a well emotional wellness and your connectivity to your family and to your friends and spiritual to nature or God and and all on and on and on, you know, mental and on and, and we all have our own needs but i think you need to know for each of us needs to know where do we get positive energy Mm -hmm. right so for me physical activity has always brought positive energy to my entire being to to my body to my mind to my soul from and i started doing it you know in my internship here at mass general uh and still do it to this day and then over time I, i jokingly say to people, there was my old self and my new self. My old self used to like to compete, you know, and there were a million different supports and things that I competed on and times and scores and stuff mattered. And then I think I got wiser and my friends helped me get wiser. And, and, and one of the things I realized when I looked is I'd lost a lot of friends. The only people I knew were in medicine or my family. And so I actually had to go back and harvest friendships. And as I harvested friendships, they helped me to my new self, which is I don't really care about the score or the time or anything. So like Steve knows, I'm a little bit insane, but like I rode this morning at four o'clock in the morning in the dark with the moon and the stars. It's a spiritual experience that happens to involve my body, but you have to have some way that you through deliberate effort, harvest your wellness on a regular basis. And that like Steve's thing at the door, there's a woman who who taught me, you know, uh, when you click your car button and lock your door, set your intention, right? So set your intention as you walk into work and set your intention as you walk into your house. But it's deliberate effort uh, to do that. And then the only final thing I'll say, which I think is really important, is this. There are certain things that all this conversation and all this attempted behavior won't help. And so if if people are really depressed or they're having troubles with addiction or other things, there's professional help. And and doctors, doctors ignore professional help. And so I think in these things we don't want to talk about, like we're not talking about Bruno and El Canto, the thing we don't want to talk about, but we got to talk about there are times you got to have a coach or you got to have a a professional to help you. And then people can't be ashamed of that. And we got to help our friends get that because we want our friends to succeed, not to fail. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. And that's the position of leadership. That's, you know, but we have to lead. Mm-hmm. Those are fabulous points. Again, I'm just taking all of these mental notes. I look forward to listening to this again. Uh, Kristen, what about you? I really don't like the term work-life balance. 
as a mom and a surgeon and a wife and all the other hats you carry, I think that that whole concept of work-life balance is just yet another strain that we really don't have to carry. I mean, it's it's just that work and life are going to have ups and downs and, and that's normal. And thinking that you're ever going to attain a balance is like world peace. Like it's just not going to happen. So in a, in a way, I think my, my biggest advice and the advice I wish I'd given my younger self, which is, I know something we may talk about is let yourself off the hook. You are not going to be perfect. You are never going to be perfect. The, the most wonderful things you can do for yourself is forgive yourself and realize that if you're trying your best to be as empathetic and compassionate as you can with your patients and your family, that's like the best gift you could give to the world. And the only better one is showing that same kindness to yourself. I, I would just say, let yourself off the hook. You're never going to be perfectly balanced. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Realize that you're, you're doing your best and with the best intention. And, and honestly, that's, that's so good. Yeah. I don't know if any of you guys do Peloton, but they often say progress, not perfection, right? Like as long as we're still trying to turn our very best. So, um, I I just have to add, if we're doing Peloton, you know, Lauren, (laughs) I I make suggestions, you make decisions. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, That's very true. (laughs) Everything that's been said is just absolutely right on perfect. But, you know, one of the things that I think we need to, like I remind myself uh, which Dr. Carroll just alluded to as well. And I, I was on a call today with Jack Flynn and we were talking about it is that we are fortunate to do what we do. It's challenging. It's very rewarding. It's, it's very effective. We, we have these often lifelong bonds with our patients and their families. And so sometimes I think uh, I can myself hone a little bit too much in on the negatives of the troubles at work. And uh, I think those of us in leadership, I always often look at it as, I want our faculty to tell me what the pebbles are that are in their shoes and the things that annoy them and make their days longer and more difficult than they should be so I can make those better. But I think I also like to think about like, don't think so much about burning out as burning in and like make your job the job you love and and why you went to orthopedics in the beginning and figure out if every day at the end of the day, you're exhausted and tired and you don't have professional days that fill you up, you should talk to somebody about that. And it it could be a therapist, it could be a mentor, it could be a friend. You know, we all have tough days and getting through those, we can help each other. But if every day is a tough day, that would be atypical for people who do what we do. I think it's largely why many of us chose to go into this field because we saw, look how much Kirsten Carroll and Peter Waters love their job. Like, I want to be like that, you know? And I think sometimes if you think about it the other way, like instead of like, how do I not burn out? How do I burn in? How do I like this? I just can't wait to go to work every day when I get out of bed. And I've been fortunate. I've felt like that most days of my career. I felt like that. I'd be like, man, let's go to work today. We're going to help some kids. It's going to teach some surgeons. It's going to be awesome. You know, so I think sometimes your frame of mind can maybe help you out. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also agree with the point. If if you're not feeling that way, it might be time to talk to somebody or seek professional help too. Absolutely. Kristen, do you have any other tips, uh, you know, just back to the forgiveness or even self-compassion? We hear that term 
a lot as well, but any other tips? I mean, it seems like whether it's tough days or complications, talking about it, obviously, talking about it with a loved one, whatever support system you have, but other tips of kind of moving, moving past and forgiving yourself um, after these tough days or complications that you may have. Yeah. So I have, I don't know how many other people do this, but I like have a happy drawer in my office. So, you know, after 30 umpteen years, I have thank you notes and pictures that were drawn, <laughs> all these kind of things. And I find that that's sometimes really helpful for me. It seems like something silly, but just going and like looking at all the people who really you've helped and who really appreciate your kindness that kind of gives you strength. And again, I'm, I'm very lucky that I'm married to another physician, which I realize can be a whole other issue. Uh, but I am married to an amazing cardiac anesthesiologist and we have buoyed each other this way. I think like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to go on a heart transplant on Christmas Eve, you know, and, and I look at him and I'm like, your patients are so lucky. They are so lucky to have you like this incredible skill. And you're going to bring this to this family on Christmas Eve. That's amazing. And sometimes you just need somebody like Steve said to reframe it a little bit. And I think we're lucky enough to do that for each other. And I, I think you could certainly of course get that in your partners too, but just like Steve said, there's burnout and there's burn in and it takes effort to do that. Um, and sometimes it needs a friend to do that or a spouse to do that or a loved one to do that. But it's a, it's a powerful message. And if you can stay mindful of it, I think it can buoy you through a lot of rough waters. Hey, Brian, I, I spent a lot of time in the tail part of my time in Boston and beginning in Charlotte, really trying to study burnout a bit more because I was really alarmed by the statistics, whether you look at residents or faculty or even chiefs in orthopedic surgery, um, how many feel burnout as defined by emotional exhaustion and isolation and a bit of the imposter syndrome, as, as was mentioned. And, and they're shocking numbers. And so uh, the, the first is the only thing in Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese uh, monk who just died and introduced a lot of mindfulness out of Vietnam and then Paris, uh, Plum Village, about um, uh, empathy and self-regulation uh, and self-awareness and mindfulness has been one of the few things that's been shown statistically to matter. But I think we, we, we have to, you know, we talked about self-care along here, but, but burnout and Steve's talking about burning in and taking care of yourself. But you, but the other thing that's just amazing and COVID really taught this to me in an incredible way, which was very scary for everybody. Um, and so fits into kind of crisis and complication is like crisis, right? So danger time or trouble time. Connectivity really matters. So whether it's her happy drawer and your friends and your relationship with your loved ones, but connectivity is so enormously important. And, and you, guys, you guys know I do this silly thing I started in COVID where I just send these sunrises and sunsets to people all over. But, you know, connectivity and trying to uh, keep us that way. Uh, but the other thing I think we've touched on, and, and I have come full circle on this from big, big jobs and too many jobs and et cetera, is I, I'm, I'm, I'm all the way back to a medical student understanding why I come to work every day. And I know why I come to work every day pretty clearly now. Uh, and it's pretty naive and it's pretty innocent and it's really optimistic, which is the other part of Steve's mindset. It's really optimistic. We will make a difference. We will have an impact. We will try our best. We will work our hardest. And to be honest, we will fail. 
you know, but we're going to get up off the floor again and we're going to do it. So long-winded way, but connectivity, mindfulness, simple, simple things. They make a huge difference. They just make a huge difference. So when Lauren and I were uh, talking about who to have on, obviously the three of you were at the top of our list and I don't think it was Lauren. It wasn't me either that said we needed somebody older within POSNA. I think we'd call it more seasoned than anything <laughs> else. Um, but if there's uh, – Kristen had sort of started on this, but from a seasoned perspective, what other advice would you give to kind of early career surgeons in, in this area of wellness, in this area of managing complications? Are you talking to the most seasoned? I would yield the floor for the moment to the other two. <laughs> yeah, Peter can go first. That's fine. <laughs> Peter, go ahead. That, that just means that my N is higher than everybody else. As I, I said in an email the other day to some folks, it's not that I'm wiser, I'm just older. Um, uh, on the particular issue, we were bantering back and forth that I actually think Steve was on as well. Um, it's a hard job. It's the greatest job in the world. Uh, but you got it. You, you know, you one of the things I didn't do so much, and part of it was interesting, Kristen, my, my wife's a doctor, and we had decided for better or for worse that we would not talk about work at home. Mm-hmm. So so when the door opened, we didn't talk about work. And, and then we would do that because our focus was totally on the family, totally on our relationship outside of medicine. And but, I, you know, there are a couple things in there. I was so intent on doing my job so well that I lost some really dear friends. And fortunately, they hung by me and, and they kept throwing out an anchor. They weren't in medicine and, and asked me to come back. And that was a mistake, you know. And so try not to lose your friends. I clearly could have taken better care of my family and my spouse. And fortunately, they forgave me more times than I deserved and and took great care of me. But, you know, to take care of those who love you deepest uh, is just important. Um, And that's the whole reason I moved to Charlotte is to be certain that I take care of them at this time of life, you know, sort of thing. And so I think those are things I would give to my uh, younger self. But on the surgical side, I'm going to say something that may sound contrary. Be bold. Be aggressive, be innovative, really go after it. That's what we can do that nobody else can do. We got a job nobody else can do. And so be innovative, be bold, pursue excellence, be the best that you can be in that arena is my, that's the other thing I'd say, because I'll tell you, that'll make you happy. That'll make you satisfied. That'll make you proud, you know, and you can't, there's not enough money in the world for what you'll feel when you feel that, you know. Steve or Kristen? I tell people the four P's, right? So, and one P, Peter Waters there, he just summed them all up. But <laughs> the, the four P's are people. So connections matter, relationships matter. You know, it's hard. It's a hard task to be a surgeon. Don't go through it alone. Build a network of people around you. The second P is purpose. Like, remember why you do what you do and and what you want to do, not only like why you wanted to go into it, but what's the future and what's your purpose going forward. And for me, that's always been really a guiding light to try to be an educator and try to build programs and try to do some research and try to make things better. So I always had on top of trying to be the best doctor I could be that day, I had a purpose on top of that, that I found challenging. And that third P and that's because for me, it was a passion. So I had passions about resident education and being part of the larger community of academic orthopedic surgeons who are trying to advance our knowledge and 
uh, how we take care of patients. And like Peter said, be innovative. And like, I'd like to do this surgery better. I don't, I don't want to just do the one I know well, like how can we do this better? And, and then the last P is pride, like be proud of your work and your commitment. And those are my uh, four P's. Maybe if I get a fifth one, it would be, be like Peter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Acquire more complications. <laughs> Yeah. So I have, I, you know, this is like, a, we were talking about like what, how do men and women process this? This is very different for me. Um, what I would say is understand the power of your authentic voice. And I think that may be a little bit trickier for gals. I mean, sometimes we feel like we have to be a guy to fit into ortho. That is so not true. 80% of medical decisions are made by women. Uh, women appreciate an authentic female voice and it has power. There's another P, power. So I, I think for me, it's a softer answer. It's the incredible impact that true empathy for a family can make. Whether the day has gone well, whether the day has gone badly, if you are there and you are a cheerleader and that family knows that you care deeply about that child, it makes a huge impact on them because they feel cared for. And like, why do you go to a physician? You go to a physician to get cared for. And I agree with innovation and I agree with research. I agree with all those things are so important but don't forget the empower, incredible power you have as a caretaker just to love your patients and to have them realize that you're on their team and they're part of yours. And the more time that's gone on, the more I've realized how important that is to families. And, you know, when we're trying to make people feel better, a lot of that is emotion. And for me, that's something that I've really kind of stepped into deeply and it has, you know, again, risk of vulnerability, all that kind of thing. But for me, that that's helped a lot with how I care for my patients and how I feel they feel cared for by me. That's fantastic. And we just are very grateful for the three of you um, taking time out of your schedules to join with us. Um, again, so many pearls for us to take home. Um, so we appreciate it so much. It was an honor to be here. I learned a lot. Um, and so my kudos to everybody who organized this and to my fellow mentors and coaches. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you all. And then uh, also thanks to Carter and the podcast team for letting the wellness committee hijack you guys for an evening for this. And thank you all so much for, for letting us come and talk to you. Great. Thank, thank you. you guys. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.